Having said that, if you would please rise for the reading of the Word. We'll be reading out of Luke 11, if you have your Bibles. Luke 11, starting in verse 14 and going through verse 26. Luke eleven fourteen. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their hearts and thought, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan is also divided against himself, he, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places. Seeking rest and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Please join with me in prayer. Gracious God, we are so honored to have before us sacred scripture. Lord, you are amazing. The God of all the world and the universe, the creator, omniscient and omnipotent, loving and caring. Father, we worship you and we praise your holy name. Father, we ask that you would be with us this morning as we worship you in our singing, in our giving of tithes and offerings, in our reading and studying and preaching of the word. Father, we pray that your spirit would dwell in the midst of your people, that you would uh, bless them and be with them as they worship and honor and praise your holy name. Father, we pray that our eyes would see what you are saying, that our ears would hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Father, that my mouth would speak the words that you would have me speak. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. This is always an interesting passage. We're going to look today a little bit at Satanology, as it were. Uh, of course, 
if theology is the study of God, theos, Satanology is the study of Satan, um, we're not really going to spend a whole lot of time, but there certainly are things in this passage we learn about God. There are things in this passage we learn about Jesus. Um, there's theology, soteriology, demonology, all wrapped into uh, this scripture, and we're going to begin to peel some of it away. I know that oftentimes, in fact, just this week I was talking to someone, and they were, they said, I am not religious, I am spiritual. I said, okay, um, interesting. And then when you are able to talk to them about what that means, to have those conversations, what does it mean to be spiritual and not be religious? And, and certainly being spiritual is a, is a true thing because we all, after all, are spiritual. Right? Although we will die someday, our spirits will live uh, for eternity in the future. The first time we encounter Satan in the Bible is where? Garden of Eden, absolutely. It was here that Adam and Eve were deceived by the serpent that the Bible tells us was craftier than all the other beasts of the field. And in John 8, of course, we're told that the serpent was the father of lies. One of the things we see as we read through scriptures is that who we call Satan or the accuser goes by many names. Of course, father of lies, the serpent, the dragon, uh, Beelzebub, Baal, they're all the same individual and so we will certainly be looking at that a little bit this is more of an academic sermon I'm sorry if you wanted an emotional one today uh, you're not likely to get a lot of that um, Satan continued his assault um, on Jesus, as we read in the Bible, in Matthew 4, we see Jesus going out in the wilderness, and Satan there tempts him, and it, throughout his entire earthly ministry, Satan is constantly plaguing Jesus up until the cross, and so here we see one of those times when Satan is encountering Jesus, or one of the demons are encountering Jesus. In verse 14, now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. We're all very familiar with the idea of good versus evil. I was having a conversation last week with a gentleman that I care very much about, and one of the things that I said to him, and it stopped him in his track because he had not really thought of it before, was Jesus, God, and Satan are not equals. So point number one, Something we need to know as a church and as believers is that Satan is not the equivalent of God, only evil. 
Satan is created. God is the creator. Right? The Bible talks about, does, a, does the piece of clay tell the potter what he wants to be? No, the potter decides in his mind what he wants to make the clay into. That is very much the same principle. Sometimes when we're praying, we're praying so much against evil, but we forget that Satan is subject to God himself. They are not equal. God is the creator. Satan is created. All of creation is subject. All of creation is subject to the creator. It is so important as a fundamental belief of the Christian faith. There is nothing that has been created that is not subject to the Creator. And only one has not been created, and that is God, in His three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Everyone, everything else, has been created and is subject to Him. As with all of the healings and, and the, the different things that were going on, the cleansings that were accomplished, there were two major points there to the cleansing. Uh, two things that were accomplished every time that Jesus healed someone or restored someone. Of course, one was that the individual, the person, was healed, which is very important. When we pray, we pray often that someone will be healed. What we don't often pray for is the second thing that is accomplished and probably the most important thing that was accomplished, and that is that God was glorified. And yet we're supposed to be praying that God is glorified, right? Remember when we talked a couple weeks about the Lord, a couple weeks ago about the Lord's Prayer? And the very first line is, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That is supposed to be part of every prayer we pray. God, hallowed be thy name. How great and awesome and mighty you are. Creator of the universe. Omniscient, omnipotent, mighty. And so we see those two things in every miracle that Jesus performs. Of course, as it was with Jesus, it should be with us. In everything that we say and everything that we do, and of course I have to watch this so I can preach to myself, God should be glorified, right? And we see this, uh, it tells us this in Colossians 3.17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, Colossians 3.17. But while the people were amazed at what they had seen, not everyone was so excited, right? Have you ever had that where you, you, you see something, maybe it's a work of art, or maybe it's a wonderful performance, or, 
or maybe it's just a really good gathering at a home or whatever it may be and and you're just in awe and wonder of what you've just experienced or seen or heard and then someone says yeah it was okay it's like go over there and stand in a corner till you fix your attitude same way not everyone was amazed not everyone was in awe Everyone recognized that Jesus had cast the demon out of this person. He was mute, and now he was speaking. Now, if I were Jesus, I probably would have cast that mute spirit into one of the scribes or Pharisees. Why don't you go over and visit him for a while, right? Just shut him up. That's not biblical. That's just me. Luke eleven fifteen. But some of them said... He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Oh, it's not good enough. We can't just be excited that he has cast out this demon. Now we're going to have to say something like, well, he cast this demon out. By the way, Beelzebub is another word for Baal, right? Who is, of course, uh, Satan. The scribes and Pharisees could not have stooped much lower. In fact, this is as close as you can come without crossing that line of committing the unpardonable sin, right? Of calling Jesus himself Satan. It is certainly a, a huge charge to make. And by the way, there are major religions in America today that say that Jesus and Satan are brothers. Okay, so let me clarify, they're not. John 1 tells us that Jesus created everything, that without him nothing was created, which means Satan, who is a created being, an angel, and we don't really talk about, well, God is higher than Satan. It's entirely different. There is God, and there is creation. God is pre existent, God is eternal, the Alpha, the Omega, and to draw a comparison really doesn't stand up. There is God. And there is creation. Satan is part of creation. In Luke eleven sixteen, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Here we go with this idea of testing someone. If someone, if I have just witnessed someone show authority over a demon, I'm not going to push his buttons, Right? That's not where we go. And yet, it seemed, and we talked a little bit about this when we talked about Mary and Martha, right? When Martha walks in and says, so Jesus, here you are, like Mary sitting at your feet, like, hey, why don't you make her... Okay, we don't talk to our Lord and Savior that way, but... Nevertheless, some do, while others, to test him, kept seeking a sign from heaven. So it's not enough that he's cast this demon out of this person. Certainly they have seen him 
heal others. Certainly they have heard his voice. That's not enough. They want another sign. There's got to be something else. Tell us one more thing. And we see this so often, both in Christianity and in the world. It's constantly this seeking after a sign or affirmation. But I tell you that even if the Bible were never written, even if another um, word was ever spoken, God has provided enough. Romans 1 tells us that his attributes are made known in creation. Right? He has revealed himself to mankind. So that's general revelation. No one has an excuse for not believing in God. If you think, well, maybe he doesn't exist, look at yourself and the intricacies of the human body, but creation as a whole. It is clear there is a creator. Our very lives, our bodies, a sign from heaven. But it's not enough. We want more. We want the next best thing. Even supernatural events that they were witnessing on a regular basis with Jesus and his disciples, that wasn't enough. Now, I've got to take a moment to say this speaks directly about salvation in so many ways. Certainly, many were um, and are convinced that they see God act supernaturally. When they see someone healed, or they see someone restored, or they hear a great testimony, there are those who come to the faith just through those things. They get this, the Holy Spirit opens up their eyes and opens up their minds, and they come to a place of believing and understanding because of what they've seen. At least that triggers that. For others, there is nothing that will convince them. There is no act. There is no major thing that would happen. Remember, here we have Israel. And they're standing at the edge of the sea. Now, by the way, how many plagues were there in Egypt? Ten plagues. Big deals. Water into blood, the gnats, the frogs, the boils, all of that. Not to mention the Passover. And now they're standing at the sea and they're like, what God, there aren't enough graves in Egypt? You decided to bring us out here to kill us? So God then intervenes and creates this barrier between Egypt and themselves and then divides the sea. Israel walks across on dry land. Of course, Pharaoh's army gets in the middle of the sea and the sea closes in, wipes them all out. And now they have this physical manifestation of God with them day and night. During the day, it's a pillar of cloud. During the night, it's a pillar of fire. So Moses goes up on the mountain, and while Moses is on the mountain getting the law from God, and here's this pillar of fire, what are they doing? They're building a golden calf. They can literally see a physical manifestation of God right before them. 
and they're building an idol. Sometimes we get to this place where we're like, I have told them about the gospel and told them and told them and told them, and I don't know why they don't believe. Because if there were a pillar of fire, if God himself were standing in their living room, they wouldn't believe. It's human nature, and we'll look at that in a little bit. It takes a gift of faith. And faith is a gift from God. Without faith, man is incapable of comprehending and unwilling to seek God. In our natural state, there's no desire. Romans 3.11 says no one understands. No one seeks God. It's not human nature to do that even when he makes himself blatantly obvious. In verse 17, But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. The charge that the scribes and the Pharisees are bringing is that Jesus is empowered by Satan. To this, Jesus responds, and he says, why would Satan destroy his own kingdom? Like, really? Really? He's got possession of this guy, and now he's going to empower me to set this guy free? It doesn't make sense. It's not logical, and it won't happen. Any house divided against itself will fall. By the way, I'm going to take a side road here because it teaches also a very important biblical principle. And that is the principle of unity of spirit. Unity doesn't mean we all agree. Unity doesn't even mean that we won't have spats and we won't have arguments. We won't have heated discussions. What unity means is that we are of the same spirit, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So that when I sin against you and I realize it, I'm willing to ask forgiveness. That when I've offended you, I'm willing to go to you and say, will you please forgive me? And maybe I don't recognize it, so you come to me and say, Pastor, you offended me. And give me the opportunity to say, wow, I'm really sorry. That wasn't my intention. Or... That when someone comes to you and says, I've sinned against you, please forgive me, that we would freely offer up to them our forgiveness. Right? It never means that we're going to agree on everything. We don't agree on everything. Some people say the carpet should be blue. Other people say the carpet should be green. Some of us can't tell the difference between the two colors. 
right? How many of you in here have that issue? There's a few of you. But we'll be in unity of spirit. In other words, the most important thing in our discussion is not whether or not we agree, but that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. That God exists. That we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That we love each other enough to be humble enough to say there is a God, but I am not Him. And by the way, the Bible says it's not supposed to be about me. It's supposed to be about thee. Right? That when it comes down to me and you, in my eyes, you're supposed to be the most important thing. In your eyes, I'm supposed to be the most important thing. Next to God, of course, who is the most important thing. We're supposed to love each other, forgive each other, exhort each other, build each other up, lest we fall from within. Because if we are divided, a divided house cannot stand, which is point number two. A basic principle, a universal law, if Jesus were empowered by Satan, he would not be casting out demons. And it's universal on both sides. A divided house cannot stand. And we see this. One of the Pharisees saw Jesus differently than the others. In John chapter 3, there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Now there was a man of the Pharisees, John 3, 1 and 2, Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. Come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus recognized Jesus as a teacher from God, that he actually was performing the miracles. Uh, he wasn't just doing sleight-of-hand tricks. In fact, when we look at Jesus' encounters with the scribes and the Pharisees, they don't question that he's performing miracles. What they question is by what authority he's doing it. Because if they give him the benefit of the doubt that he is getting this power from God himself, then he either has to be a prophet or he has to be the Messiah. And they don't want to give in to that. So we're going to look just a moment at this uh, person we know as Satan. Talk a little bit about uh, demons. Now, I already mentioned that demons are created beings. Their power is not limitless. They are limited. They're limited both by the way they were created and they're limited by the will of God. They can only impact us to a certain amount. In Job, we have this picture, right, of Satan walking up and saying to God, hey, why do you protect this guy? Like, just let me at him, and I know he'll fall. And God says, no, he, he's a righteous man. But yeah, okay, you can have him. Only you can't kill him. So, of course, his family gets wiped out, his I mean, he ends up broken, desolate, and poor. And basically, he has his wife 
Three sorry excuses for best friends and his God. And his wife says, curse God and die. And he says, though he slay me, yet will I put my hope in him. In other words, that's all I've got. I don't know what all of, all of this is doing. I don't know what's happening. I don't know why Satan is being able to attack me. When things are happening in your life, they can only happen so much. God has put a boundary around you. And you say, well, I know, Pastor, but I've seen people with boundaries around them. People that love the Lord and they die. I know this is a really hard concept to accept. But here it goes. Everyone does. Right? Everyone dies. Everyone dies either of disease or by accident or whatever it may be. The Bible tells us that God has numbered our days. God knows exactly how you will die. He knows exactly on what day you will die. He knows who will be with you, what shape you will be in. He's got all of that written down in a book before the foundation of the world was laid. You are in good hands. One thing I can tell you is you will not die one moment before your intended time. Please don't go and jump off a roof. That may be your intended time, right? So when it comes to Satan, he is not omniscient. He is not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere. He is a created being. He can be in one place at one time. And his power is limited by how God created him. He isn't limitless like God is. All-powerful, he is not. All-knowing, he is not. But he is crafty. Craftier than we will ever be or can imagine. And he is powerful. Much more powerful than we are. But he's not, he does not have power without end. So there are things we should be doing like praying to our God, and yes, praying against Satan and his kingdom. And there are things we shouldn't be doing. The Bible forbids things like horoscopes, visiting mediums, things like Ouija boards or tarot cards and things like those. When you're messing around with the spirit world, you're messing around with the spirit world. Stop it. It's forbidden by Scripture. Nicodemus knew the fundamentals. He knew that Jesus was performing the miracles and that he was empowered from heaven. This is God. This, he is doing this work from God. So in verse 20, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Take note, if I'm doing this by God, the kingdom of God is upon you. And then he goes on, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not against me, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me 
scatters. Jesus, again, is teaching an essential truth. Satan is strong, but there is someone stronger, and that is God. And they don't work together. God doesn't say to Satan, hey, Satan, what do you say we go bug someone today? Right? That's not how this works. Satan may go to God and say, I want permission to do this. God doesn't go to Satan and say, hey, I was thinking I'll stir up a little trouble over here. Can you work that out for me? That's, God does not do that. Satan's goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. Never to heal, lift up, and save. Is that slide available? Point three. Are my points showing up there? Oh, he fixed it. Thank you, Caleb. So this was the important thing because when I sent my slides, it actually says Stan's goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. Now, I don't know how many of you know Stan, but thankfully, Caleb saved the day. A question I get asked sometimes is, can Satan do miracles? What was the answer? Oh, we have a divided house. So, yes and no. Right? He can certainly do things that look like miracles. He certainly can counterfeit miracles. But he is limited in what he can do. So, for instance, we have an example um, of miracles that God performs. Remember the... Uh, I think it's in Acts chapter 3, and you have Peter and John, and they're walking into the temple, and there's a beggar there, and he's asking for alms, and Peter's like, dude, I don't have any money. But what I do have, I give to you. And he grabs him by the hand. This guy has never walked or stood up a day in his life. It says from birth, he was crippled. And Peter walks up, grabs him by the hand, and says, I don't have silver and I don't have gold, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he stands up and instantly his feet and his legs are strengthened and he leaps. That is a miracle that God performs. Right? God is creator. He is able to restore. He is able to build up. And then we have this um, miracle, remember the whole thing about Moses and his miracles and now he's in Pharaoh's hall and he throws down his and Aaron throws down his staff and the staff turns into a snake and then the priests Pharaoh's priests or magicians they throw down their staff and it turns into a snake and then Aaron's staff swallows it Right? Showing there is this level. And possibly, I don't know, probably some sleight of hand. But what we then eventually see in Exodus 8.19, because they're copying miracle after miracle, and 
and likely they were sleight of hand tricks or something. But in Exodus 8.19, finally they're like, hey, we can't make any gnats. We don't know how to make gnats. I don't know how to make gnats either. They say specifically, this work is the finger of God. So by definition, to perform a true miracle, you have to work um, against the laws of nature. For instance, or the laws of creation, a swimming axe head, right? Or people rising from the dead, turning water into wine. Those are things that are reserved for God alone. Everything else can be done. It can be counterfeit. But Satan can't perform a true miracle because it acts against the laws of creation. But he's very good at counterfeit miracles. They look really good, but there's really no substance to them. In Luke 24, it says then, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. If a demon is cast out, it's gone. But if the Holy Spirit does not then indwell that person, he will come back to that place. And not just come back, but he's going to bring his seven bigger, uglier, stronger brothers with him, and they're also going to move in and inhabit that person. And his state will be worse than at first. What he's saying is, as believers, we have the authority, believe it or not, through Jesus Christ to cast demons out of people. You can actually walk up to someone and say, hey, get out of him. Nah, he's not going to work. Walk up and say, in the name of Jesus, I command you to leave. Okay, I get it, the whole thing of the exorcist, spinning heads and blah, projectile vomiting and floating. and Yes, some demons are harder than others and certainly some demons can only be cast out by prayer and fasting, but demons can be exorcised. But be careful because if you exorcise a demon... And that person then doesn't come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. Then that demon that you just kicked out is coming back. And when he comes back, he's bringing the mob with him. And that person's fate is worse than before. So point four, certainly we should have respect for Satan and his power. But we should not give him the power and authority that only God possesses. He's got his limits. It's awesome when God performs miracles. We should recognize and look for when and where God is working. When he does it, it is for his glory. 
and certainly bears witness. It lifts the person that's affected by or afflicted as well as those who witness the miracles. But there are these things we should keep in mind. Number one, Jesus and Satan are not equals. God and Satan are not equals. Satan is created. A house divided cannot stand. Which speaks to the unity of spirit that as believers we should have. Stan's goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. Never to heal, lift up, and save. Let Stan know that. He's in trouble. And certainly we should have respect for Satan and his power, but we should not give him the power and authority that only God possesses, according to the Word of God. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who is mighty. We thank you that you're a God that is not created by human hands, nor do you rely on humans for your existence, but rather we rely on you. Because of you, we have our life and our breath and our movement. Lord, we thank you that you are a righteous and holy and loving God. Father, we pray as we study your word that it would impact us as we go throughout the week. Father, that you would give us opportunities to serve those who are in need. That we would be reaching out to our neighbors, to our friends, to our enemies. Lord, that we would be loving people that we would be the hands and the feet of Christ. That our lost and broken world would see Christ in us. That we would have the opportunity to share the love of Jesus with people. And that you would give us the boldness to speak when normally we would stay silent. Father, we pray that in our hearts and through us, you would be active in Castro Valley, that the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would be reaching people daily, that we would have an impact, that your Spirit would have an impact here on our community. We pray for the churches here, that they would stay true to the Word of God, that they would be reaching out as well. We pray for the pastors, that you would keep them strong, that you would call them to your word and to their knees. Father, we thank you for your love for us and for our lost and broken world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.